Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts. For as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, Sunday, September the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, looking at uh, Philemon today. That will be the primary text probably that I'm going to focus on more than the others, but we're also in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20, Philemon 1, verses 1 to 21, and then in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. So before we get started with all that, though, I'll tell you about the week that we had. We've had a good week. I, I, I ask for your prayers for a friend of mine whose first name is Stuart. He, uh, his son died this week. Uh, he was 32 years old, uh, had a couple of strokes, and died. It's uh, uh, rough. You know, it brings back some memories, obviously, for me and all that, but, but it was a blessing to be able to spend time speaking with him and, and time on the phone together. Um, so keep Stuart in your prayers, please. But uh, other than that, we, we kind of had not—we had a busy-ish week. We uh, had our anniversary. We were 37 years uh, on Tuesday. Had a nice day, had a nice hike to start the day, and then a nice dinner out together that night. And then uh, on Thursday of this week, we went out to the Art Loeb Trail uh, out in Canton, North Carolina. And uh, I had hiked the Art Loeb Trail, which is a 30-mile long-distance hike, essentially from Canton over to um, Brevard, North Carolina, across the Shining Rock Wilderness and uh, up like seven mountains and so it's it's a wonderful trip it took me about three days to do it and uh but Suzanne and I went out this week and we hiked the first three miles we were going to do more than that but there was a place where there there was a really bad storm that came through and did a lot of damage in that area a year ago and the trail was pretty badly eroded in some areas uh here and then we got out to a place where there was a bridge uh before but now that bridge is gone and so there's a it's a little tricky crossing and then you got to scramble up a hill and Suzanne didn't feel like she wanted to do that so we didn't <laughs> we went out about 3 miles we're going to we'll go back there in the fall because I want to climb up Cole Mountain um this fall so we we'll go back in the fall but I'll be more prepared for it then and uh, have what I need to help her on that climb up that that scramble up that hill so but she's been a real trooper we, that was one of the hardest hikes we've ever done. It's not an easy hike in any by any stretch of the imagination from a perspective of climbing or the perspective of how difficult the actual hiking itself is. A lot of rocks on that trail. Um, some of it's, you know, you got to be careful where you step. A lot of that trail is, is that way. So anyway, we had a really good time. Then we met a friend of ours um, for dinner that night, and her birthday was this week. So we had sort of a joint birthday um anniversary celebration with her so it was good so we've had a good week um excited about that getting together with some friends actually tonight as well so it's been a good week and a a week filled with people which is always best for me um a little less so for suzanne but she enjoyed (laughs) everything we've done this week she's she's enjoyed it very much so we had a great time so anyway that's sort of the catching up the housekeeping stuff nothing else exciting going on i still don't have a clue what we're supposed to do next um but anyway, so we're going to roll over into the uh, into the uh, actual sermon, I guess you call it today. It's, although I don't really preach a sermon, I do more teaching than I do preaching. So in the Deuteronomy passages, it's towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which means it's towards the end of the life of Moses. Uh, 
Um, and so he, he has told them all the dangers and the pitfalls that, that they could find themselves in if they go astray. And he's also given them a, 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 a listing of the blessings that they will receive if they remain faithful to the Lord, because he's going to remain faithful to them. And so, but ultimately, he's not just a God of mercy, he's also a God of justice. And ultimately, he, he, while he does, while he's patient and kind, his, his love is long-suffering, there's a point at which his patience can be exhausted, and, and where there's a step too far, and then judgment has to come in order to fix the problem at hand, in order to re- restore the people to himself. That's always the ultimate goal of God's punishment, and that is to restore his people, his covenant people, to that covenant relationship, to a place where he can bless them. That's the whole point of the discipline, is to restore the relationship to a point where God can bless his people again. He can't bless in sin. He has to bring us back to a place of repentance so that he can then bless us in the way that he wants to, in the ways that he has promised to bless. And so that's, that, that's where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. He, Moses has laid it all out for the people. And he stands before them and he says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Well, that all was also set out in the garden. You, tr- you have the tree of life, and you can freely eat from it. There's no prohibition against it. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which will bring death. You will surely die. You will surely perish is actually the best way to translate that word there. So here he says, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. So it's that same dualism presented in the garden. And when they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose actually evil because they chose death. And that's the reason that Moses can say, I'm setting before you life and good, death and evil. And what are those things? Well, those things are calling you to obedience to God's word, to God's commandments, which which he gave on the mountain at Sinai 40 years before this. He said, I've laid this all out for you, and I've laid it out clearly. He said, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, and how do you do that? By loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules. So if you will love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, exactly the way he said to love him, and if you then will, will, will show that love by walking in his commandments, statutes, and rules, and you walk in his ways, the paths that he leads you in, then, he says, you will live and multiply which is exactly the the covenant God made with Adam and Eve, which is a covenant of life and multiplication. And and how did they achieve that multiplication? God blessed them in order that they could multiply. So he made a covenant of life with them, but they chose death by choosing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. So here he lays this before them, and he says, if you do the things that I'm commanding you today, you'll have the same blessings that Adam and Eve were promised. That is life and multiplication. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to take possession of it. But, he says, so you've got an if-then, which is the most basic you know, computer programming in the world. you got an if statement. If you obey, then you shall live and multiply, and God will bless you. So if you do these things, if you obey, if you love, 
if you walk in his ways and if you follow the statutes, commandments, and rules, then, then, then you'll live and multiply, and he'll bless you in the land. But if your heart turns away and you'll not hear, but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them, the word is implied, then I declare to you today that you will surely perish. So if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, you will surely perish. And now Moses says, if you follow other gods and go after them and worship them and serve them, then you will surely perish. Same words, exactly the same language as Genesis 3. He said, you shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and to possess. The, the implication is, is that not only will you die, you won't multiply. So the promises made to Adam and Eve are, are reversed here, but they have a choice to make. Because Adam and Eve made a choice in the garden, now we have a choice to make as well. There was one rule, don't eat of that, and now there are, well, 613, according to the Jews. But the main thing is, love the Lord your God. So here he says, if you, don't, if you choose unwisely, you'll surely perish, and you won't live long in the land. I'll throw you out of the land just like I threw the Canaanites out of the land. I mean, it's the old Bill Cosby thing. I brought you into the world, and I can take you out. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. I've done my job. I've laid out everything that I was supposed to do and laid it before you, and I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you heard these things. You, you don't have the excuse of ignorance. He said, therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to them, for he is your life and your length of days, that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So and Joshua will do exactly the same thing at the end of his life once he brings them into the land. So Moses gives them this admonition on the one side, which is choose life. And then on the other side of the land, once they possess it, Joshua gives the same command. And it's the same thing that, that they were given in the garden. And so God's giving them a new garden, a land flowing with milk and honey. That, that's the new garden. And they're supposed to tend it and multiply in it. And, and then to follow him, serve him, obey him, and worship him, and, and love him, and then they'll experience blessing, and then the rest of the world will see the blessedness of God's people, and they'll want to know, just like they did in the time of Solomon. They'll want to come, and they'll want to see for themselves. What is this? This is different from everything else on earth. The church is intended to be the same thing. But it's the same commands, the same offer that he made to Adam and Eve. Just obey. If you'll obey me, then we have a covenant of life. And that's exactly what happens here. And so Jesus worked out that obedience for us in order that we can then follow him. We're going to follow him imperfectly, period, end of sentence. Every single one of us will follow him imperfectly. But the goal is to follow him, to become more and more and more like him. And then when we do, and when we fail, then we fall back on him and we ask for forgiveness based on the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And we know that blood is efficacious because he was risen from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. So he's my only plea, my only hope. But, but we have to be quick to confess. We have to be quick to repent. We have to be quick to see things. I saw a video this morning of a pastor out in Arizona who's a very famous guy. Uh, he, he came before his congregation and said, there's a problem and I've got to be on a leave of absence for a period of time. And, and it, 
it was one of those, oh, no, another preacher fallen kind of thing, you know. Well, that's not quite what happened. This is a, a witness to the rest of the church in so many ways, because what had happened was that, that somebody approached him after church one day and said, I think you've been in, texting inappropriately with somebody. He said, he, he said that everybody was clear. There's nothing sexual about these things. His wife was well aware of it, but there was an over-familiarity there. And the, and the person confronted him and said, I'm concerned about this. He went to the elders the elder, he, and gave him his phone. They looked through all the text messages and decided, yeah, there's no sin of a sexual nature here in any way. There's, there's not, you know, this is not out of bounds. There was no sexting or anything like that. Um, but, but there's an over-familiarity here, and, and you need you, there's the frequency of the texts and that this, not the intimacy, that's not exactly the right word, but what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is, is that, that there was an over-familiarity. That's the only way I know to say it. But, but intimacy is, I mean, we, I, can, I can have an intimate relationship with friends without sex being involved in that. It, it can be just that we disclose things to one another that we wouldn't tell the rest of the world. And so here, that's what it was. And so he accepted their, he, he first submitted himself to them when somebody accused him sort of, of something, and then he submitted himself in accepting their discipline in order that he could then be restored. But he has to change in the meantime to become that guy again and to win back the trust and the respect of his congregation. It's a beautiful moment, absolutely beautiful that it happened. Um, I, I'm sorry for him. I'm sorry for his family. He's not innocent, obviously. He knew that he wasn't innocent. He wouldn't have accepted the, the uh, discipline if he were. But, but that's exactly the way that we're intended to, to be, quick to repent, quick to acknowledge wrongdoing. In the gospel today, great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, I mean, you're listening to this, if you're, if you're there in situ, you're, you're hearing him say this, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this guy's asking me to renounce and reject everybody who's taking care of me and everybody that loved me, and, and he's, he's encouraging me to hate my mother and father. I'm supposed to love my mother and father. I'm supposed to respect them. I'm supposed to, in fact, honor them, is what God, is what God said in the commandments. I'm supposed to honor my mother and father. Jesus says you've got to hate them. And I'm listening to this. If I'm listening, you know, in, in real time, it's like, well, this guy—I don't even know what he's talking about. This is this is not the same thing God said. But and then he goes on to say, yes, and even his own life. So that word "hate" is doing a lot of duty there. And what it's doing is something like the the rich young ruler, right? Because the rich young ruler was so enamored of what he had that he couldn't open his hands and give that up in order to receive the heavenly inheritance, the eternal inheritance. At least at that moment, he was not able to do that on Jesus's authority. And so it was a rejection of Jesus's authority to say, no, I can't do that, and to walk away. Here, Jesus is saying the same thing. You've got to consider everything else of such insignificance. Anything that would keep you from following me has to be hated. Yes, even your own flesh. Because you know what? The biggest barrier to following him is going to be your flesh. If he calls you to do something you don't want to know, you want to do. But, but we have to do that. We, we, we have to be willing to leave everything else behind and follow him. When I went to seminary, I did. I mean, I knew that it was not going to please anybody, and everybody was upset with me because I decided to go to seminary, and then I left everything else behind and went there. And, and I was right. They did. Everybody was angry with me over that. But you know what? God healed all that. Every single one of the relationships that was kind of broken 
at that time, God restored every single one of them. And so, yes, in that moment, you've got to make a decision, just the same way that Moses lays a decision before the people. You've got to choose whether you're going to be obedient to the one who calls you, or you're going to be obedient to the other voices. You know, obedience to the voice. That's, that's exactly what Moses said, to be obedient to the voice of God. And, and that's sometimes the way it goes, is he calls us off to himself by ourselves, and he says, this is what I want from you. And then my answer is supposed to be yes or no. And and the reason I'm partially reflecting on that was because 25 years ago, this was exactly where Suzanne and I were. I I, I felt absolutely called to go to seminary. We went and visited under her protest. And then for the next couple of days after that, I was absolutely determined this is what I'm going to do because I had put it off five years before that by listening to other voices. And so now I decided, nope, I'm plowing forward and I'm going to do this thing. Was I absolutely 100% secure in that? Yes, I was. But I was also fearful in that obedience, in that step of obedience to him. God provided, and he did everything we needed him to do in order to get us there and to, to sustain us there and all those kinds of things. So, but, but I had to say to my wife, I'm going, period, end of sentence. You can go if you like. Now, they wouldn't have accepted me if I'd come by myself and said, well, my wife's divorcing me because I'm coming here. But, but I knew what I had to do. I knew what God was calling me to do, and I had to make a decision to leave everything else behind in order to do that. I mean, I felt pretty certain that he wouldn't call me and then have me get divorced. But I had to stand firm in order for that to happen. Then I had to persevere for other people to respect and accept my decision to do that. And it's never been particularly easy to have done that. It would have been a lot easier, I think, if I'd done it when I was like 21 rather than 37. But, you know, hey, that's on me. I failed. God's not holding that against me because I confess that sin. So, so when Jesus says that you can't be his disciple unless you do that, it means a, a renunciation of everything else in the world that would claim, that would have a claim on you. And we're going to talk about that in the Philemon passage that we're going to look at in a minute. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Twice he says, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple unless you hate everything that has a claim on you other than God, including your own self. And you can't be his disciple if you don't bear your own cross and come after him. He's not saying it's easy. you got to bear a cross. Well, nobody signs up to bear the cross, right? I mean, that, that's, that, that promise that he gives you is, is that, that you can be my disciple, but if you renounce every other entanglement you have with, with other human beings, including the people you're supposed to honor, and unless you're willing to bear your own cross and come after me. He says, and then he goes on to say, you know, this is not a new thing. This is the way it works in life, right? This is what he says. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You're not going to do it if you don't have the money to do it. He says, otherwise, he's laid a foundation, and he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy, right? You don't want to be the guy who runs out of money partway through the project. You don't, you don't want that embarrassment. He said, or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. You need to understand the cost, Jesus says. It's the cost of your own life. It's the cost of potentially all your other relationships. In the moment, you have to make the decision to make a break, a radical break with everything else. Follow him. 
and you can't let what other people are going to think be the determining factor on whether you make that decision or not. It doesn't mean that you only get one chance. I'm not saying that at all because I got more than one chance. So there, there's the end of that story. So then we have to make the decision to make a radical break. And the problem was the, the, the longer I waited, the longer I delayed, the more I had and the less I wanted to give that up. And so God always calls us to ministry. He always calls us for his purposes. And, and, and like Abraham, we have to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to follow that call. And that's exactly what he says. And then in this passage, what, what is he calling us to, though? He's calling us to two things, freedom and life. Both those things. Those are the promises that he's given us. And in this passage today from Philemon, this is, to me, it's one of the greatest little, little books in the entire Bible. You can see the, you know, the, the sort of the, the archetype uh, of um, Jewish guilt stories is right here. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So the, the two of them. And I, and I think Timothy must have been the one who was writing this. And we're not sure where he's writing it from, which prison he's, write, he's writing it from, whether he's in Rome or this is before that. He's, it, so we believe that Timothy wrote it, and it's because at the end, Paul says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. So here, here he says, he, he describes who he is. He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus and our Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So he's writing this to this person named Philemon. We don't know exactly where he is either. He goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just the way he begins every letter that he writes. And then he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And he says that a lot, too. And that, But then he goes on here to describe exactly why. Why does he give thanks to God? He said, because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In other words, the, the people who are in your church, whoever those people might be, I hear about your love of of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and your faith and your love towards all the saints that are in the church. You, you love the people of God. And, and that that's wonderful. And I give thanks for that, Philemon, how much you love the Lord and how much you love the people of God. That, that is to be commended beyond belief. He says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So that as you share your faith, I'm praying for success for that. I'm praying for fruitfulness for the sharing of your testimony and your faith. He says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. You mean a lot to me. I've gotten joy and comfort in my affliction from your love, Philemon. And, and, and Philemon itself would mean a, like a man of love. That Phil part, the P-H-I-L part of that, that, that's like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? So Philemon is a man with love. So he says, I, you've given me so much joy and comfort in my affliction and in my imprisonment from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You're sharing the gospel, you're teaching, you're you're loving the saints of God, the people in that church, the people of God who are around you. I get so much joy and comfort from that, from hearing about that, because you have refreshed the hearts of the saints. 
What a great thing. Accordingly, therefore, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command and you to do what is required. So I I have the boldness in Christ to command you to do something, and when I do, you have a duty to do what is required. Because of the the power that I have, that that God gave me as your father in the faith, essentially is what he's saying. I'm, I'm not above you. But I do feel like I have a certain sort of responsibility for the church. And so I could require you to do this and command you to do it, and you would do it. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I won't exercise that authority. I'm just going to appeal to you in this way. I'm just going to ask you if you'll do what's required without telling you to do it. I want it to come from the heart. I want it to be a voluntary thing, he says. And, and this is exactly what Jesus is saying in that gospel lesson. It's not a commandment to do this. He can't make you do this. He's not going to overpower you and force you to do something you don't want to do. It's a voluntary submission. And that's exactly what Paul's looking for here. It's exactly what Moses said. This is the terms of the covenant are your voluntary submission continually. And so here, that's what Paul says. He says, then he's going to come back to himself. I, Paul, like at the beginning, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So, so he's appealing to his, his age, which would be two things, right? It, it means there's an authority inherent in his age, but there's also a, a sort of tenderness and a weakness in saying, I'm just an old man, and now I'm a prisoner also. So on those two grounds, I'm an old man and I'm a prisoner for Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Who is this Onesimus? We don't know yet. You know, Philemon does, but we don't. He says, formerly, this is parenthetically, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. The word Onesimus means actually useful. He says, look, before he was useless to you, now he's useful to you and to me. So who is this Onesimus? Well, he's a slave. And in Rome, there were many, many slaves, like maybe 10 to 20% of the entire population were slaves. That's somewhere between 5 and 10 million people who were slaves, and they didn't have names, not proper names anyway. They had names like this. Onesimus, useful. My grand, my grandmother, when I was a kid, through in fact, for, that dog lived for like 21 years. Dog's name was useless. And who names a dog useless? Who in the world does that? Well, my grandmother. And, and she loved that dog. I mean, loved it so much that when that dog died, I'm like 14 years old. She wants to take it over from where she was living, over into northern Alabama where she grew up, and bury that dog at, at the old home place that had burned down many years before that. And so we went there. And not only did we go. I just told you I'm 14 years old. I drove because she was so torn up she couldn't do it. So that's somebody who names a dog useless, but who finds out later that's not the same thing. I might have thought that that dog was useless, but that dog saw her through so many things. It was unbelievable. He was her companion in everything that she went through. And so there's a perfect example of what that looks like in that goofy name that my grandmother chose to give her dog. So here, that's exactly what... What Paul says to Philemon, the owner of this slave, he said, he used to be useless to you, but now he's useful. He's fulfilling his name, living into the name that you gave him. 
And that frequently it seems that they would do that. They would give names that were sort of aspirational, that, that in the hopes that a slave would live into the name that they were given. So you got 10 to 20 percent. Yeah, 10 to 20% of the population, somewhere between 5 to 10 million people. They're not people, they're property, they're chattel. They're not listed as human assets in asset listings that you pay taxes on. They're listed as means of production. And they had no rights, not even to marry. They played a really important role in the productive capacity of the owner. However, they were just listed like tools, and that's it. And so here, Onesimus, the name, is not really a proper name. In fact, he was a runaway slave. And what they could do with runaway slaves at this time was to tattoo that on their foreheads. And it basically said, property of Philemon, untrustworthy, runaway slave, property of Philemon, on their forehead, told who they were. I mean, if you've seen uh, Les Mis, then, then you're aware of this because Jean Valjean uh, becomes a prisoner— and then he is hunted for the rest of his life for a parole violation by an inspector Javert who doesn't call him Jean Valjean. He calls him 24601, which is his prisoner number. And the Nazis did that in Germany. They, they gave them numbers and took away their identities and their names. And so this person was only untrustworthy, runaway slave, property of Philemon. You are to return him to Philemon. His name doesn't even matter. So Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. I mean, Paul's laying it on thick and heavy here, but he means it. I mean, this is genuine as it can be. He's pleading for the life of Onesimus. He's pleading for this runaway slave. He's pleading that he not be punished beyond measure because he says something's happened to him. He has a new identity and a new purpose in life now, and I'm sending him to you. He's been useful to me and helpful to me. I'm sending my very own heart when I send him back to you. I would have been glad to keep him with me. He's useful to me in order that he might serve me, well, on your behalf, right? So there's the implied, hey, you know, he's serving you. He's essentially something you're giving to me to help me because you love me. That's the way I receive him, he says. But I preferred to do nothing, which I could have kept him. I would have liked to have kept him, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. I recognize that I'm harboring a runaway slave, and therefore I have some guilt in this under the law. But that ain't the law that governs us anymore. It's not the law that governs our relationship. The law that governs our relationship, Philemon, is totally separate from that. The law that governs our relationship is the gospel of Christ. And so he says, I I, I didn't want to do this without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. This would be a good thing that you do for me if you do this. It would be good all the way around. And it would redound to your credit if you did this thing. So I, I, I know you're going to do the right thing. And that's the reason I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. By asking rather than compelling. Because I know who you are. You're a good man, Philemon. And I know you're going to do the good thing. He says, he says, perhaps even, this is why he was parted from you for a while. Well, he's parted from me for a while because he ran away. <laughs> Paul says, there's probably a good reason all this happened. God's in this, he says. 
He says that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Uh-oh. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. He says, while he's been here, he's converted to Christ. I'm his father now. I'm his father in the Lord. He is converted to Christ. And look, he's coming back to you, not just as a servant, but as a brother. Doesn't that get you excited? You who love the saints so much that I praise God for you. He's a saint. Onesimus, he's, he's a saint now. He's one of us. He's a brother. And I know you love the saints. Well, he's one of them. What are you going to do? I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. So he says, so if you consider me your partner, receiving him as you would receive, receive him as you would receive me. Pretend when he comes to you, receive him exactly that way. You know, you would probably treat me like the prodigal son. If you saw me coming from afar, you would probably run to me and offer me all kinds of lavish hospitality. I want you to do the same to him. I'm the guy who first brought you the gospel, and you know that. Well, I want you to receive this runaway slave that you have civil rights to do certain things to. I want you to receive him, though, not that way. I want you to receive him exactly like you would receive me, which is exactly what Jesus says again and again and again. Whoever welcomes one of these in my name, the Father will bless. And so here, that's exactly what Paul's saying, receive him like you receive me. Treat him that way. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, which is most likely that he ran away with money, he says, charge that to my account. And then he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And he has to, because he has to prove that it's him. It's not, Timothy's writing can't bind him. So Paul says, I'll repay it. Whatever he owes you, I'll repay it. It's exactly the exchange Jesus made for us, Right? You owe a debt that you cannot pay. Jesus said, so I paid that price for you at the cross. Now what are you going to do, right? Are, are you going to renounce everything and, and come follow me as I renounced everything in order that you could follow me and you could have life and that covenant of life? So the, the way that you renounce is you love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then the question is, what do I have left? Well, I have the love of God poured into me left in order that I can love my neighbor as myself. And then it, we show we love him by following his commandments and obeying him and walking in his ways and truly following him in all that we do. And so Paul says, if he owes you anything, here, I'm going to write it out. I will repay it. And then he goes on to say, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Jesus can say that to every single one of us. I paid the price for your sins. I paid a debt that you couldn't pay, that you absolutely owed, and I paid it on your behalf to say nothing of your owing me your own self. And that's the gospel. That's what we owe him. We owe him our lives because without him we're dead. We're dead in trespasses. And Paul says, here, I'm going to show you what the gospel looks like when it's played out. And I'm asking you, Philemon, to play your part in forgiving this slave. He said, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And how's he going to do that? He's going to refresh his heart in Christ by treating Onesimus as a brother. Concludes by saying, confident of your obedience, I know what you're going to do. I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. Are we prepared to do even more?
Are we prepared every single day of our lives to do even more than Jesus actually requires of us? Are we willing to get extra work without getting extra credit? Are we willing to do it because he did so much on our behalf that we can never repay him and he's not asking us to? He's just asking us to be obedient. It's all about grace. It's not about us repaying the debt because we can't. But it's about gratitude for grace, the most important thing we can have.